so God says, okay, time for more street theater. You've got to get their attention. So he was told to pack up all of his belongings in his house in the evening and then dig a hole under the city of the, 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 um, the refugee camp and leave with his belongings on his back and his face covered. This was to symbolize that the prince, most likely Zedekiah, would be carried out of the city and killed there and he would be blinded. And we know this. When Zedekiah finally is, the city is being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, Zedekiah flees the city through a secret door in the side of the wall, and he goes with all his belongings, family and kids, everything, and then Nebuchadnezzar catches up with him and blinds him and kills all of his family in front of him and then gouges his eyes out and blinds him and then carries him off to Babylon in exile, and Zedekiah never sees it coming because he's blind. So this is how the prophets said, you will go into exile, but you will never see that day. And on the surface, you're like, that's kind of confusing. How can you go to exile and never see that day? Because he went in blind. He never saw it, literally. This is the illustration that he's pointing here, that this is going to happen. And the very man, the king, that you're trusting in to protect you is not going to be able to do that for you. So then God told him to prophesy against the false prophets, the false kings, and the false or the kings of rebellion against God. And the priests. And we've already seen that in other um, chapters and other books of the Bible. So he told him at this point, the destruction is inevitable. And then he talks about godly men. And he says, your judgment, your destruction in Jerusalem is so inevitable, so assured, that even if extremely godly men like Daniel, Job, and Noah were living in your city, I would still destroy it. Some of these people who God sees as some of the most faithful, most righteous people in human history, he says not even their righteousness can save you from destruction. Now, that doesn't mean that God would kill them if they were in the city. Because remember what he proved with Lot is he extracts the righteous, then destroys the city. But he's saying like even like their righteousness would not be enough to balance the scales, so to speak, in order for your city protected and to be saved. And then he talks about the fact that grapevines are useless for burning. You're a grapevine, Israel. And, and the grapevines only have one use and one purpose only, and that's to produce grapes. Now, yeah, you can burn a grapevine, but that doesn't really get you a great fire. If you've ever tried to burn grapevine, I mean, you can strip the, the bark and the stuff off and grind it in your hand and, and turn it in a nice little burn nest, and it makes a great kindling for a fire but you throw that stripped-down grapevine in the fire, it doesn't burn. It just mostly smolders and, and just kind of like there's certain woods that don't burn well. And it's absolutely useless. It just becomes a smoldering stick. And he says, you're not producing fruit anymore. So you're useless. And I can't even burn you in judgment. Even burning you in judgment is useless because you're just going to smolder there. I can't even cleanse you and purify you in that kind of a sense. And so he tells this parable, he gives this imagery to say, I wanted you to be big, flourishing trees that provided shelter. Remember the image of the tree that provided shelter for all the birds of the, the kingdom of God and all that kind of stuff? That's what I wanted you to be. But instead you become grapevines that don't produce fruit. And not all grapevines produce fruit. You actually had to work really hard to get grapevines to produce grapes. Chapter 16. I'm not going to go through this. You can read it on your own, and maybe you have, but this is a very graphic imagery 
that God gives. And when you read it, I don't think most Christians know that chapter 16 is in the book of Ezekiel because if they did, they might be horrified. When you read it, you're just like, wow, God, that is really graphic. And basically, he starts with talking about Israel being an aborted baby and that nobody wanted it. And God was the only one that found it and cleaned it up and, and, and got its blood and filled off and then adopted it and put it in white linen clothes. And nobody wanted to adopt it. And he cleaned them and he took care of them. And then he says, and then you thanked me by I'm the one who saved you from being aborted. And I'm the one that cleaned you up. And I'm the one that adopted you. And I'm the one that made you righteous. And you thanked me by prostituting yourself to everybody else and walking away from me. But the imagery is way more graphic than that. So if you haven't read it yet, I do strongly recommend you read it because it's the word of God. And I don't, if God didn't want you to read this stuff, he wouldn't have put it in there. But do prepare yourself. The imagery, some people are more sensitive than other people. The imagery is very graphic. And I know at the very end, you probably think like, wow, God, wow. If my pastor ever gave a sermon like that, I probably want him fired or like rebuke him in some kind of way. But the graphic, remember, we're more sensitive as Americans. I mean, a lot of cultures, when you go into the East, they're, they're not as sensitive to this stuff as we are. And, and, and so God lays it out because he's really trying to show them what has really happened. He has told their history so many times and has not changed them. He has showed their sin in their face, has not changed them. He has judged them and has not changed them. And now he's bringing out the harsh graphic language to really shove it in their face. And there's almost a shock value here for them to really, do you get it? Do you get what has really happened here and what you're like and what you're doing? And that's what he does in chapter 16 as he tries to get their attention on this. So then he tells this parable of eagles and a vine. And this is in chapter 17. And these eagles, he sees these eagles flying over. The first eagles, Nebuchadnezzar the second. Eagles are often portrayed as, um, eagles represent divinity, um, but eagles were often used to also represent power. And so like the Third Reich of Germany and the Roman, soldier, the Roman government had eagles and that kind of stuff. And basically what they're saying is that our government is divined divine because we are placed here by the gods and what we do is what the gods want so to oppose us is to oppose the gods and 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 you're like well wait a minute hitler didn't believe in gods oh yeah he did he was deeply rooted in the occult and all kinds of stuff so that's kind of the imagery here so but god also sometimes flips that eagle imagery when he gives visions and you'll see these eagles in the book of revelation and they portray his divine hand directing these kings. And so the idea is not that you are a god and you're backed by the god in your government, but at this point of what you're doing is backed by me because I'm directing you to bring judgment on the nations. So in this sense, the eagle is not God saying Nebuchadnezzar is truly backed by God as a government. What he's saying is that Nebuchadnezzar coming to punish Jerusalem is backed by God. I am ordaining that. And so the king of Babylon is going to sweep down in Lebanon and Jerusalem, and he's going to take the king Jehoiachin, the last king of Israel, or Judah, sorry, who will go in exile, 
who is portrayed as a cedar branch in exile. And then the land will be raided. And then Nebuchadnezzar II will make a treaty with Zedekiah, who ruled over the weakened land, the vine. So Jehoiachin is portrayed as a big cedar tree, where you remember that is good and useful. A wood tree is better than a grapevine. And Zedekiah is portrayed as a grapevine, because the idea is Zedekiah is useless. And Jehoiachin is an ungodly king, and he's not righteous, but there's enough righteousness in him that God is going to preserve him in exile and continue the Davidic line from him so that one day he can bring the Davidic line back, and then eventually the Davidic line will produce Jesus. And so the idea in that sense, Jehoiachin is the cedar tree that is going to be cut down, but the shoot will grow up again. Whereas Zedekiah, he is the grapevine that produces no grape and is only good for burning. And even then, not really good for burning. And that's the idea is that Nebuchadnezzar is this eagle that's going to deal with this cedar tree and this grapevine in these two ways. And what God is showing is that your judgment is coming, but I'm also preserving the line of David because I made a promise to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Then Yahweh told a second parable. No explanation is given this parable. But as we look at it, it seems obvious in the context of all the prophets of what the meaning is. And the idea is that one day he would raise up the ideal Davidic king from the sprig or the root of Jehoiachin. And so it seems to elaborate even fuller on that first parable. So the first parable, these trees are carried off. The grapevine is carried off and dies. The cedar is carried off and goes into exile. But in the second parable, God talks about that cedar producing a sprig. It grows up and turns into this big tree. And all the birds, all the nations, so to speak, are going to dwell and live in that tree. And that imagery, we'll see that again in the book of Daniel. And we'll see again later in that. So in chapter 18, there's more judgments. So the people begin to quote that parable that says that they were being treated unfairly. Now remember we saw that parable in the book of Jeremiah. They were talking about this parable like, hey, God is letting us and our children suffer. We're the only ones committing sins, but at the same time we're not committing sins because God has abandoned us, but at the same time we don't care about God. And they're just contradicting themselves and saying every bad thing that's happening to us is not fair. God is unjust. And God promised them one day will come when you'll be in exile and you'll look back on all your horrible sins and you'll realize, whoa, God was not really unjust with us. We deserved all that. And so God's going to give two, three illustrations here to make this point with Ezekiel. And the first illustration he gives is of a righteous man who does not sacrifice to false gods, does not sin sexually, does not oppose anyone, does not cheat or steal, does not take, and does take care of the needy. And he says this man will live because he's obedient to the law. So he's going to talk about three generations here. And the first generation, he talks about a righteous man. And he says this righteous man obeys the law. He abstains from evil and he pursues justice in other people's lives. And as a result of that righteous faith life, he will not die in the judgment that I'm bringing. Then he says, but he has a son. And this son is wicked and evil. And he does all the things that God has said not to do. And he does not help the needy and the poor and all that kind of stuff. And he will die in the judgment of God. And then he goes on and says, but this guy has a son. And the grandson is righteous. He is unlike his father. He looked at his father's lifestyle and said, I don't want to be like that. And he goes back to his grandfather's roots and he lives a righteous life. And in that sense, he will not die. 
And when the point that God is making is they're saying that God is punishing the children who are innocent for the sins of the father. And God is saying, no, I do not. I do not punish the children for the sins of the father. And I do not let wicked children go free for the righteousness of their parents. Everybody gets what they get. There are passages where God says he will punish the children of the parents. And he'll punish them to the umpteenth generation. And he'll keep them going. We kind of briefly talked about this when we went through the Ten Commandments. And it's somewhere, I forget what other book it was later, because he says that there. And you say, okay, which is it? Some people teach that God used to punish the children for the sins of the father. But now God is going to bring a new law in and say, I'm no longer going to be unjust like that. We're now entering a dispensation of grace. And I will now treat people equally for their own sins. But the problem is that when you look at the character of God, you see both. You see both all through human history. And, And after this, you see both. Where sometimes he does punish the entire community for sins. Like all of Israel suffered the loss of fighting against the city of Ai under Joshua because Achan and his family sinned against God. But there are other times where that doesn't happen. And this struggles with a lot of people because you even see, as I even see movies today where people are like, don't you know that God has changed his mind and brought Jesus and God is no longer a barbaric God that punishes children for the sins of the father like in the First Testament? Even Obama said things like that. Do we want to build our law of our nation on laws like this that are unjust and stuff. And he said, no, we're going to build them on better laws. A lot of people think literally that God was like an unjust, cruel, mean God in the First Testament, just punished everybody. But then he turned into this nice little papa father, children sit on my knee and tell stories to them in the Second Testament. The problem is, is you see a God of wrath and judgment in the First Testament, but you also see incredible grace and compassion. Hopefully by now in this class, you've seen that. And when you get to the Second Testament, a lot of people forget some of the things that Jesus did in the Gospels, and they forget what the book of Revelation says, and they forget the words of the epistles when the prophets or the apostles of God are writing the epistles, and they have some pretty harsh, God is going to do this, Jesus is going to do this. Remember the book of Revelation, the first way that Jesus portrayed is with fire in his eyes and his feet bronze and a sword coming out of his mouth. That's all judgment language. That's smashing the nations. And then when he rides on the white horse in Revelation, he is treading the nations like the wine press, just like Isaiah 63 that we saw of God doing that. God does not change. So how do you reconcile this? Well, once again, there are certain things about God that I don't have perfect answers for you. And sometimes we just have to embrace the paradox. However, one is that God is wise. Remember, God does not rule the world with justice. We've talked about this. Sometimes this justice does not happen immediately. There's a lot of things that are not getting justice right now. He does promise one day he will bring all people into account, but he's not ruling the universe primarily with justice's primary agenda, that I always want justice 24-7 every second, because that's impossible in a fallen world. If he gave us justice every second, we would all be dead. If he gave justice every second... Then, then he would have to not show us grace. By showing grace, he does. So he rules the universe through wisdom. And there's timing for when he does that. 
And he is the only one that sees the hearts of people. And there are times where he is a God who can see all the hearts of every human, of every person, of every family, of every nation, and he can see what they're going to be like in the future, and he knows every possible decision that they could ever make, and he deems that it is just and wise in that moment to punish the entire corporate body of people. And there are other times where the wicked should not be punished. And so, yeah, you could say, yeah, but they're little kids. Yeah, but... We live in a very fortunate culture and country where there are a lot of innocent people in our country. And mostly speaking, kids are innocent. But if you go through human history and you read some of the things that have happened in the past where there has been no Judeo-Christian morality that shaped the formation of that nation, the kids are messed up, even at very young ages. Remember, all the things that we've talked about and sometimes have left you uncomfortable as we've read about them in the Bible, they're bringing their four-year-old, five-year-old kids to these things to watch this. They're worshiping with their parents. They're watching this. They're being, and they're being told that this is good. Look, okay, we kind of get a hint of this when you see like gangster movies or some kind of um, terrorist movie and there's this really messed up father who's like killing people for a living and that kind of stuff and his kid is innocent and he's like do it and the kid is like no I don't want to do it because he's innocent and he forces the gun in the kid's head and forces him to pull the trigger and forces him to look at it and do that because he's trying to make his kid like him and if your father keeps doing that to you at a young age that's going to change you and God can redeem anybody but once you're hooked in those kind of thinking and that at that young of an age we now know from psychology and all that kind of stuff that what you've experienced and what you've felt and how you are by four-year-old pretty much gets locked in. At four years old, it's teaching an old dog new tricks, basically. So, I mean, you can change people and you can break habits, but something locks in. And the traumatic experiences, the sinful things that we've experienced, even the the... People, little kids who can speak three different languages completely fluently, their brain picks one of those languages at age four. All these things start locking in. And if your parents have had you watching this 24-7 over and over and over again and saying it's good, it's righteous, and they're glorifying it, by the time you're, another locking in happens at six years old. And by the time that file four and six, things are, you're going to have to work really hard to change that person now at that point. Not that they can't, but think about it. We're talking about kids who might have been exposed to that at six years old, and you can bring them out of that environment and adopt them and put them in a Sunday school class or a church or a good family and work on them really hard. But where do you pull those kids out and where do you put them in the ancient world? Everyone in the nation's like that, and all the nations around them are like that. And so sometimes God does punish the whole corporate body because the whole corporate body is like that and they're all doomed to be that. And sometimes there's still some righteous families out there that can show you a different way and God can put them on a different path. Now, that doesn't even begin to do justice of how God is working things out and thinking things. That's the best I've got of what possibly is influencing his decision of wisdom. But ultimately, I'm not God. 
And ultimately, I don't see the bigger picture of human history. I don't see the bigger picture of people's hearts. And I don't see the trajectories that they're on and how they can get derailed from that or not or what, all that kind of stuff. And we stand here in our finiteness and our sinfulness and we say, how dare you, God? That's ignorance. Absolute ignorance. And so once again, we've already talked about this a little bit with the Canaanites and that kind of stuff. But what I'm saying is, yes, I can show you passages where the whole corporate people were punished. And I can show you places in the Bible where individuals were not because their fathers were that way and they were not. And all I can say to you is only God sees the bigger picture of time, space, and matter. And all the directions we can go, who we are, and how we can be redeemed. And remember, it is his desire that none shall perish. All receive eternal life. And he wanted that so badly he was willing to let his own son die on the cross. And that itself should say to you that if he does punish a whole corporate nation, it's because he's done everything that there is to do. And they've still chosen to shake their fists. And there is no derailing them from their sin because they've locked their hearts in. And they are not even, they find it trivial. But what God is saying is, that Israel was like that, but Judah's not. He will not punish the righteous with the wicked because there are righteous. And when he does and when he doesn't, only he knows. And that's important to understand as we navigate. And I know that's not a tie it up in a nice, neat little bow, bow and it's perfect logic and everybody feels good and okay about that because there isn't. And maybe on the other side of this kingdom and when we get into the kingdom of God, we'll finally fully understand how God worked and not function. Or maybe we will always be ignorant because we're never going to be God. I don't know. But remember, his reputation. This is what I tell my students all the time. You may walk away from God and the Bible for lots of different reasons that you don't like in the Bible or don't make sense to you. But remember when you're walking away from him, you will not find anything better than him. Whatever you think that is bad or does not make sense in this Bible, that is giving you your reason to walk away, you're going to find 10 times, 100 times worse than every other option out there. And yes, there are things that are confusing here, and there are things that don't make sense to us, but there's way more evil, confusing, injustice things than the other gods and the other religions and the other philosophies out there. And none of them have a God sending his son to die on the cross for our sins so that we can be saved from all this stuff that we don't make sense or doesn't judgment or whatever. Remember and know that if you do walk away, and I'm not speaking to everybody directly here because I know you've walked the path for a long time, but there's a lot of people out there who will be listening and seeing one day. There's no other God who is absolutely all sovereign, powerful, and all loving at the same time and who will also pursue you to the ends of the earth no matter how much sin you've ever committed and will bring you into a relationship and salvation by grace alone and so yes sometimes this is uncomfortable sometimes it doesn't make sense to us sometimes we think that doesn't feel right but there is no other option that even comes anywhere close to this 
And I'm not saying to you, like, well, pick God because the other options are a little bit worse and he's the best of the worst. That's not all I'm saying. Don't carry that, the, that thinking too, that far. I'm just saying it doesn't make sense to us. Not that God is really, like, the best of the worst. He is truly the best, the best, and the only. And what feels bad to us is only because we're finite sinners and we're not the righteous, holy, divine God of the universe. And there are no other good options out there, period. This is who God is. Ezekiel 19, God tells two parables to Ezekiel to tell the people. And the first parable was of the Davidic line. And he tells the story of mother lionesses. Remember, the Davidic line is, comes from the tribe of Judah. And Judah is portrayed as a lion in Genesis chapter 49. And David's lion is portrayed as the, um, a lion as well. So these two, lioness, these two lions are first King Jehoiaz, who we haven't really talked about a lot. He doesn't show up a lot in the prophets. He's pretty minor. He only ruled for three months. That's why he doesn't show up a lot. Before he got captured and taken by Pharaoh Necho. Necho was the Pharaoh of Egypt, and he took them and imprisoned him. And the second line was Jehoiakim, who became a prominent king, who was an oppressive king who committed many acts of social injustice. And Nebuchadnezzar bound him with shackles and took him to Babylon. Now these are the two kings that are ministering during the time of Ezekiel. The only other kings after that is Jehoiachin, who's captured by Nebuchadnezzar and put in prison, and Zedekiah, who is going to be killed eventually by him. And so what God is basically saying is the Davidic line, who thought that they were all that, they were kings, they were becoming powerful, they thought they were great lions, and God made them lions, could easily bring them down too. And so two different nations, Egypt and Babylon, took them and bound them up and imprisoned them. And that's what he's going to do to the whole nation. The second parable is of the Davidic line. And this is portrayed as a mother who became very powerful, many descendants, and had many branches. But then it was carried off by the Babylonians by the east wind, because the east wind is always a symbol of judgment, where Jehoiachin was in exile in Babylon, and the consuming its fruit, the fire consumes its fruit, describing the fall of the Davidic dynasty, anticipates the demise of Zedekiah. So the last four kings are portrayed in two parables. The two to the end are portrayed as being captured by kings, and the last two are being portrayed as being burned in the fire. And so basically what God is making very clear is that this is the end. When God repeats parables and they have a similarity to themselves, then he's saying it's definite and it's final. Remember when Pharaoh in Egypt during the time of Joseph had two dreams, one of the sheaves of grain eating the other and the cows eating the others. And Joseph said, the fact that this has been proclaimed to you twice means it's definitely happening. So when God gives two parables of this judgment of the Davidic line, he's saying this is definitely happening. There's no prayer that will change this. There is no coming back from it. It is permanent and is done. Now, once again, we're like, yes, we already know this. This has been told to us as so many prophets, and we already know because we're post-history. But for them, it's new, and they are still been questioning it. And this is what's amazing. 
no matter how many times God has told them this, they're still like, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. And it just shows their stubbornness and lack of faith. So chapter 20 talks about 591 B.C. And this is where Babylon, or Nebuchadnezzar, ruling Babylon, came back and took another group of elders into exile. And Yahweh went with them into exile. So he's continuing to portray that this is definitely happening. These parables are followed immediately after God taking them into exile, showing that he really is going to do this. But the elders come to Ezekiel and they're like, hey, speak to God on our behalf. Give us a, a message of hope and promise. And Yahweh comes to Ezekiel and says, tell them this. I did give you hope. I did give you promises. I redeemed you and saved you. I brought out of Egypt. I adopted you. I made you my child. And you went off and prostituted yourself to a bunch of other people. And so now you're going to be judged. How's that for a message of hope and promise? And he's basically saying, I'm done. I'm done making you feel good about yourselves because all you do is continue to rebel. But he says, I am determined to sanctify you. And, and this is powerful because over and over and over again, God says that he loves them and he will not abandon them. He promises to restore them one day. He says that he will sanctify them and purify them with a cleansing fire. But what's interesting is here, God makes it very clear that I am determined. This is going to happen. This isn't just him saying, this is my plan. This isn't him just saying, this is my promise. This is him saying, I am determined to fix you and make you right as humans and people. This will happen. And as much as you want just somebody to warm the cockles of your heart all the time, there is a promise that I will sanctify you, but you're going to have to go through a whole lot of burning before that happens. And this is what God promises. And he says, and when this does happen, that day will come and you will no longer go after other idols. And you will no longer abandon me because I will accomplish what I've promised. And that's kind of the idea of he will finish the work that he has begun in you. And so in chapters 20 through 21, he describes this fire even more. He talks about how it's going to be used, the fire is going to be other nations. And so not only is Nebuchadnezzar going to come and get you, but the Ammonites are going to come and get you. And the Edomites are going to come and get you. Everybody's going to come at you. But what's interesting is the next several chapters that we go into, God's going to make it clear that he's going to judge them as well, which he already has. So remember, even though he uses the nations to judge them, he basically also judges the nations. And then in chapter 22, he reminds them that no one's innocent. No one's innocent. They are all guilty. They're all deserving of judgment. So in chapter 23, Yahweh tells another parable of two sisters. And these two sisters, he married them both. And these two sisters are Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And they rebelled against him. They went after other um, gods and other kings. And they made alliances. And even though they were betrothed or with under his authority. So the phrase says, they were literally, she was literally under me. And what that means is you were under my headship. You were under my authority. And when you were under my headship, under my house, under my roof, you went off after other people and other alliances and other treaties and other gods. And so God in chapter 24 says, 
you're the cooking pot and you're in the meat and the cooking pot is the judgment and you're in the cooking pot and you're going to be judged and you're going to be destroyed. And then he does something very interesting. In the last part of chapter 24, Ezekiel's wife dies. He tells him that she's going to die and she does die. And he says, but you're not allowed to mourn her death. You're not allowed to go to a funeral. You're not allowed to mourn it. You're not allowed to cry. And this seems like, wow, God, this seems really in compassion and stuff. It might be more of an idea of in public. Not that he wasn't allowed to mourn or cry at all. Like, I don't know if you can really, like, shut down somebody's emotions. Like, well, some people can, but you just can't turn your emotions off. He says, but because the idea is that just like Ezekiel loved his wife, and when she died, it was a shock, and he wanted to mourn her. Israel, Jerusalem, loves the temple of God. It's a very wealthy, powerful, prominent thing. It was more glorious and more awesome than any other building that any other nation had. That was their trophy, like the, the trade towers of New York or the White House or the Capitol building or the Washington Monument, any of those kind of those. That's where our pride is. That's an icon of our pride. And that temple was going to be destroyed one day. And the people weren't going to mourn the loss of the temple. And the reason they were going to mourn is even though they so badly would want to mourn that the image of their national icon and power, they would be so shocked that it was destroyed. And they'd be too busy being carried off by Nebuchadnezzar or being killed, they wouldn't have a chance to mourn. This is what God is saying, is that just like you have prized the temple like the most important thing to you, you will not be able to mourn it because of the destructions coming. And Ezekiel can't really truly mourn his wife's death because of all this stuff that is happening around him. And your ignorance, your ignoring it, and your judgment that is coming. And so this is what God is saying is, this is how serious it's going to be. This is how serious it's going to be and how definite it is. And so that's the end of the second section. The end of the second section. And the next section is chapters 25 through 32. And in this section, this is the judgment on the nations around them and in the world. And this looks exactly like Isaiah 13 through 23 and Jeremiah 46 through 51. And we've already, we went through Isaiah 13 through 23, and we looked how God dealt with each nation. We were given a little mini preview in Amos 1 when he said, For three sins, no four, I have this against you, Tyre, and then Damascus, and then Edom, and then Ammon, and all those nations. And then he got a lot more elaborate in Isaiah chapter 13 through 23. He specifically went around those surrounding nations and judged them. And then he he was very elaborate in Jeremiah 46 through 51. He's going to do the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 25 through 32. He's going to go through all those nations again. He's going to target seven nations. And he's going to mostly zero in on Tyre and Egypt and Babylon. Because Tyre is the heart of Phoenicia, which brought the Baal worship into Israel through Jezebel when she married Ahab. And of course, Egypt was very dominant over um, Israel and Syria for a long time. And they constantly turned to them. And of course, Babylon is going to come and destroy them. And then once he judges these specific nations, he's going to specifically judge the entire world and put them under his judgment. 
Now, once again, all this is painting the picture that Israel is God's chosen people, but the whole world belongs to him. And he can do whatever he wants with the entire world. And he will hold the world for their, accountable for their sins. And he will also bless them if they come back and turn to him. So those are those chapters. And we're going to kind of skip over those because that's exactly... We went in more detail through Isaiah. It's almost the exact words and the exact language as we went through that. 